0: The lightly armed archers run forward. They stick knives through the eye holes of the fallen men's arms. They gather up their arrows. They go back to the line. They wait. The French are astounding. The French keep coming. Wave after wave of cavalry charge uh, is mown down by um, by the long longbow.
1: You're listening to War College. A weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt
2: and Jason Fields.
1: Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields.
2: And I'm Matthew Galt.
1: History is filled with improbable victories the Greeks over the Persians, the Maccabees over the Seleucid Greeks, the Giants over the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Twice. One battle that stands out over the centuries is the British victory over the French at Crecy. David Crowther of the History of England podcast joins us to tell the story. And we'll be talking about England's secret weapon, the longbow. So welcome, David. Hi, Uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. So can we start off by talking about the lead up to this battle? Who were the major characters and what were they fighting for?
0: Uh, Okay, so um, the the central character in the story actually is a chap called Edward III. And he's a a fascinating character. He's uh, he's almost a quintessentially medieval chivalric figure. Um, As a young man, his father, Edward II, was a very unsuccessful king. Liked light, uh, light cutting hedges and digging ditches, which was, you know, it's not it's a nice personal characteristic, but uh, not brilliant in Kings. So he was killed, actually, and he died in a... He was killed by a chap called Roger Mortimer in a, a beautiful castle called Barclay Castle in the, the west of England, in a rather painful way, which probably I won't inflict on you, but if you want the details, let me know.
1: Oh, uh, at, actually, if I might interrupt, because uh, both do we, we do want the details, and also, what year are we talking about?
0: Okay, so... No, you're going to get me to get me on dates, but my memory is, if I get it wrong, don't don't shoot me for it, or don't treat me like Edward II. we We're talking 1327. Okay, thank you. Uh, and Edward the Second is killed invisibly. Now, if you're going to kill somebody invisibly, I'm you know I'm not. This is not like bomb a bomb making course or something like that. You know, forgive me uh, for giving out tips to people. But uh, one of the ways it could have been that he was smothered by a pillow. The more popular interpretation is they had a red hot poker uh, shoved up his backside. You did say you did want the details.
1: <laughs> now I regret saying that. <laughs> yes. Okay.
0: Well, there you go.
2: So. No, you shouldn't regret it. There's a lot of great details in this story, and we want all of the gory ones. All of the gory
0: ones. Then it shall be. Uh, then it shall be so. So uh, Edward the is killed, and Roger Mortimer actually takes up with Edward the wife Isabella, <clears throat> um, and Edward the Third's mother. At the age of 18, Edward III, he's had enough with this because, um, uh, you know, his, Roger Mortimer is essentially ruling England in his name while keeping him away from power. So one evening, him and a b- bunch of mates gather outside Nottingham Castle. There are tunnels under Nottingham Castle. They creep in through the castle. They appear suddenly in Roger's uh, Roger and Isabella's private apartments and they capture uh, Roger, one of Roger's mates. Uh, Tries to escape by crawling down the loo, because in those days, of course, the loo's hung over the moat. So if he could could squeeze down the toilet, he could get into the moat. Again, too much detail here. Anyway, not a good not a good position to be caught in with your head down a toilet. Uh, He's captured. Roger Mortimer is executed publicly. Edward III takes control. His mother, he treats with great honor and, you know, she's um, given given a palace in the uh, in the countryside. So Edward III is a—he's a go-getter. This is not a man to be uh, pushed around, um, and he—but <clears throat> he doesn't carry that bitterness with him. He creates a court around him, and I think one of the attractive things about this is he builds a court around him, uh, which is a shining example throughout Christendom of the chivalric idea, ideal. And if you ever get time to read an original um, source book, Jean Froissart's chronicles are a fantastic read. So that's one thing. Edward III is out to prove his name. England, meanwhile, has an ancient claim to France. <clears throat> so to the French monarchy, French, French monarchy, it's pretty tangential. But there are um, if in France, you're not allowed to trace the, uh, the line uh, through um, through women. So the Salic law means that you can't trace a descent through women. If you could, actually, Edward would have a better claim to the throne of France. Than with the current incumbent Philip. That's always the thought of the reason, the, the reasoning for this uh, for this war that breaks out. In actual fact, it's a bit more complicated than that. In the run up to uh, to 1337, um, which is essentially the time when uh, Edward III stands in the, in the, in Flanders in the Market Square in in Ghent, I think it is, and declares that he is claiming the throne of France. The French King Philip. He wants Gascony. Gascony is in southwestern France. It's owned by the kings of England. Actually, it it descends from Eleanor of Aquitaine. um, And actually, it should have been held without making homage to the French king. But in 1259, a chap called Henry III gives the rights to the French king to pay homage for this area. Philip King Philip wants it back. So he's after it. And in actual fact, he confiscates it from England, just confiscates it, doesn't listen to any argument, says, I'm taking it back, you no longer own it, away you go. He also cuts off access to Flanders. Now, Flanders, Belgium, uh, the low countries, is the centre of the cloth trade. Um, uh, English wealth is is massively based on wool, and Flanders is their market. They can't access Flanders, uh, they die. In addition, France makes an alliance with the Scots and so the Scots love sticking it in the in the um, uh, sticking a knife through the English backs whenever they get the opportunity. They've done it before several times. So this is a threat to to Edward. So in actual fact, the reasons for the war, part of it is about Edward's claim, you know, desire for glory. But but there are real reasons why he's actually forced into war. So I rattled on. You need to get used to just interrupting me. Look, David, shut up. We need to ask you a question now. You're boring us. Be quiet. Please. I'll be quiet.
2: Okay. Oh, I'm, not, I'm not bored at all, no. and I, I am rapt, so please continue, sir.
0: That, that, I think, is the, um, is the background. You've got Edward III, who's desperate to prove himself, defines himself. Uh, by uh, by the chivalric idea. He also mar- marries Philippa of Hainault, Hainault is in the Low Countries, again, you know, very rich area. And that brings brings with him some amazing characters like Walter Manny, who's this kind of I don't know, he's kind of like this this mad warrior who charges into battle shouting Manny at every available opportunity. He brings with those warriors with her. And she's this, you know, um uh, renowned queen in the classic medieval um, medieval model of queenship her job is to be uh, to adorn the court to be um, the, the model of grace and elegance but also to intercede with the king to to make him give mercy to the people that he's beaten and defeated which happens at calais in in 47 um so you've got this amazing court for a, a court of many talents i could go on about the uh, the captains that uh that uh, walk through this story um so he decides. He's going to take it to France. He stands in the the market square in Ghent. He raises a new flag, which is the English coat of arms quartered with the French fleur-de-lis, and he claims uh, the kingship of France, and it's on.
1: So a quick question about the matchup between these two foes. Um, England's reputation as cool, damp, and... uh, uh, slightly more hospitable than iceland i've been there a few times but um so i think of it as slightly better than that but if we can compare that with france i mean who are the foes who are setting up
0: against each other so by this stage england is a small damp island off the 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 coast of europe um it's not quite an irrelevance in um strategic terms but um traditionally of course germany and the holy roman empire has been the um the leading nation in Christendom and still, of course, incredibly important. Um, but France has really assumed that mantle. They are seen um, and consider themselves to be the leading nation in Christendom. They, uh, their, their University of Paris is famed for its theological expertise. Uh, the Pope, throughout the conflict, actually, and this is not me just carrying a chip on my shoulder, but the Pope constantly favours the French because they are his, you know, almost the Pope's um, uh, sword arm as it were. Philip himself refers to the the Pope as his special friend. Um, So they they are at, you know, they are the most powerful, the most renowned culturally, militarily um, country in Europe. England, as I say, small damp place off the coast of of England, of uh, Europe, um, threatened by the Scots, Constant um, and very bad relationships now between the Scots and the English, which means the English constantly have to look behind them. Broadly, that's entirely the English fault. Um, uh, and so, this complete mismatch, in fact, I think France has something like four times the population, that, as does England. Uh, it, so, it's a complete mismatch. You know, nobody gives the English any chance. And indeed, when this conflict starts off, the theatre of war. It's not in the southwest in Gascony. It's actually in the north. It's in Flanders. It's in northern France. It's in Brittany, actually, which is another autonomous, not not yet tied to the French throne. Uh, and it and it's rubbish. You know, um, uh, Edward III's first campaigns in 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 38 and 39 are an absolute, uh, you know, complete waste of time. He doesn't get defeated necessarily, but he gets nowhere. He has a strategy, uh, Edward. He says, look, we're small small and puny and we'll get pummeled by the french unless we get some mates. So he goes and finds himself some friends. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire emperor in particular. Um, and the Holy Roman Emperor takes lots of money. Money that Edward III can ill afford. Um and then does absolutely nothing for it. So when the you know when the chips are down he says, "Do <laughs> so you going in now? Right well I'll join you. I'll be right there. You know, I, don't don't wait for me but you know, I'll be right there." And then is nowhere. Year after year, Edward does this, and in, and by uh, by by thirteen forty, he's pretty much broke. Um, he's heavily in debt. Uh, he's got nowhere. And the other impressive thing about Edward, he just will not accept that this is not going to happen. In thirteen forty, he wins a naval battle at place called off a place called Slois, um, off the Low Country, which was again an absolute mismatch. Um, and his his whole court beg him not to go. They say you cannot do this. The French Navy is far bigger. They've got some Genoese galleys there as well. Um, you're going to get you're going to get gubbed. And he says, you can stay. Those of you who are afraid can stay. I will go. And the King of England goes And on the water. He risks everything and he gives them a kicking. And actually, this is one of the first signs that the longbow is a is a decisive weapon because naval battles on battles in those days they were like land battles at sea. You floated alongside your opponent's ship and you tried to board them, and you had a land battle essentially. Anyway, I'm rattling on. You might want me to stop, but <laughs>
2: well, let's <laughs> yeah. let's let's get us let's get to the to the central yep. battle that we want to talk about today. Um, yeah, tell tell us about Cressy. Why was it important? And kind of set that up for us.
0: Okay, so. Um, I've given you the context there of, of failure, essentially, apart from Slois in 1340, he is beset by failure. Eventually, um, uh, he, give, he gives up on the Holy Roman Empire because that's, you know, uh, that's absolute rubbish. He has a strategy. then. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take war to France. And he, he actually writes a letter to the Pope and he says the best way, to, best way to avoid the inconveniences of war is to pursue it away from one's own country. So his idea, and this is actually a general idea at the time in, in European warfare, is that you prove to your opponent's people that their lord is incapable of defending them and you ruin their economic means of, um, of wealth. This is called the chevauchee. So the idea is you, you get your army and you march through the countryside on a 20 mile wide front and you burn and destroy everything in your way. That's what he's going to do. He's going to land in northern France. he's going to march through northern France. He's going to join up with a with a, an army that's going to come from Flanders with with whom he's allied, and then he's going to take on the French. and with Flanders, maybe he can do it. And all
2: we should yep. we should state here that this is this is not how things were done at the
0: time, correct? This was a new idea. The cheval phase is, is a reasonably accepted way of doing it. the the strategy that Edward adopts is uh, is actually reasonably um, ad- accepted at the time. The tactics is where I think Edward is going to be innovative. Um, so he sets off um, and the French gather an army, King Philip gathers an army and he chases him. And you have this, this great story of this, uh, this march through France with the English trying to stay one step ahead of the French so they can hook up with uh, the army from Flanders and then maybe they'd have a chance. Uh, and they're trying to cross the rivers, and the French are trying to trap them against the rivers, and it looks as though they're trapped. Trapped. And then uh, late one night, Edward finds uh, finds a Yorkshireman in the depth of France. This is his last chance. He's going to be trapped by the French king. Uh, his army is much smaller before he can reach the army of Flanders. And he finds a little ford at Tac, and actually it's the very same ford that Henry V years later will also um, uh, meet up with. He manages to cross. It. He gets away. But still, the French are right behind him, he gets across the river. And then he hears terrible news. The army of Flanders isn't coming. Once again, he's been let down. His allies are not going to come. The logical thing to do that point is to it was, be to pick up his skirts and leg it for the nearest port, which he could have done. So does he do that? No, absolutely. Right. A <laughs> little, 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 <laughs> little faster next time, if you wouldn't mind. would he do that no so he turns at a place called cressy and he says right we're gonna do this um i've spent close to 10 years here Uh, this is now 1346 i've spent close to 10 years i've got no money i owe three hundred thousand pounds which was a massive amount in those days um we're gonna fight we're gonna do this he's innovative very innovative in his tactics is edward Actually, he's one of the first kings to use um, he uses a type of cannon. Actually, they don't play a very decisive role in the battle at all. But he's got cannon at Cressy, not very much, not often talked about. Um, a sort of, uh, they shoot arrows, actually, I think, with gunpowder uh, set up on a cart. So he's always looking for the modern, the innovative a- angle. Now, the way you fought those days, it was all about your mounted heavy cavalry. Usually, socially, because it's expensive to get yourself um, multiple war horses and armour and all the rest of it. So usually those guys were much higher up in um, uh, the social structure, uh, nobility, nobility, certainly. Um, that's the, Those are the crucial thing. Now, the French army would have some foot soldiers. They would have particularly crossbowmen. They hired uh, Genoese crossbowmen. Um but they're almost like you know, you know, in Star Trek. Do you remember Star Trek? Are you a Star Trek fan? Oh yes. Trumets. You know, in the original Star Trek, sometimes they took security guys with them in red tops. Yes, do you remember that? Now, whenever the the red shirts, you know, whenever the red shirts went onto the planet, you knew they were going to die. They were just cannon fodder. <laughs> this is pretty much <laughs> what the French men at the, the French foot soldiers were. Nobody cared about the foot soldiers, so I'm I'm going to try not to rub it on too much, but there's a lovely battle in 1217 at Lincoln where one nobleman dies, a chap called the Count of Persh, and everybody's gutted that a nobleman has actually been killed in a battle. Nobody cares how many foot soldiers, ordinary folk, get killed. In fact, slaughter them as much as you can, but nobody kills a nobleman. One, because it's not done, and secondly, because you sell them. You know, you, you ransom them. So... The point is battles are won by heavy cavalry, an unbeatable charge, lance leveled, the good old traditional medieval um, thing. And your foot soldiers are there to soften the uh, enemy up uh, by uh, shooting at them or um, actually getting amongst them. Or the cavalry breaks up your enemy and then the foot soldiers come in when they're defenceless and finishes them off. So that's the way battle was done. Chivalry was built around that. Edward says, we're not going to do that. It doesn't sound like chivalry. No, it's not like, well, chivalry, chivalry it, yeah, idea. that's right. There's a lovely discussion there to be had. I must admit, about well, what chivalry <laughs> actually means <laughs> in, in practice?
1: It has something to do with horse, right? Chivalry. It has.
0: That is absolutely true. Yes, it does come from uh, from the word for horse, chivalry. Um, uh, but chivalry is, you know, very clearly um, a two-brained thing. You know, it's for the rich. It's not for the, not really, not for the poor. Anyway. So Edward says we're not going to do that. We're not going to play this game. First of all, our men-at-arms, our nobility is going to get off their horses and they're going to stand on the ground. They're going to be dismounted. All his men-at-arms are dismounted. Um, And that's, you know, that's demeaning almost. That's not the way it was done. Secondly, he's not going to – the French plan of attack is you send your crossbowmen forward, they have a go first, they see who they can pick off. Your foot soldiers are then held in reserve once the posh guys have done their job. Uh, These elements, in a way, don't work together. Edward III isn't having that either. Archers and men-at-arms are together as a unit. Actually, we still don't really know how the the English line of battle was set up. Some people say the archers were in small formations in between the traditional three battles of of men-at-arms, centre, left and right wings. Um, other people say they were entirely on the wing. So there's still a lot of uh, dis- debate about that, but they work together. Uh, they work as a as um, a- as one army rather than these disconnected groups. The third thing is he's not going to go out in a blaze of glory uh, charging down the enemy, showing who's got, you know, who's the who's the um, uh, who's got the greatest cojones here. He's going to sit there. and He's going to let them come to them. And throughout the Hundred Years' War, actually, the vast majority of battles are won uh, but th- that are won by the English are won on the defensive. It's very rare for them that they win a battle where they actually attack, which is a bit cowardly, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit feeble. You're disappointed, I can tell.
1: <laughs> no, I, I actually
0: hey, they won. <laughs> exactly. Yes, indeed, it's the result that matters. So he, So that's what he does. He lines up. Uh, Shall I keep going, or do you want me to just stop rattling on and saying you've got my must special? No, no, no. That's what we're paying you for. You're supposed to rattle on. Wait, wait. wait. You're paying me, (laughs) Jason. You tipped our hands.
1: (laughs) We have no, no negotiating power at all.
2: Let's take this opportunity to pause for a word from our sponsors. You are listening to War College, talking about the Battle of Cressy with David Crowther, the host of the. History of England podcast. What's the best mattress for you? If you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Thank you, War College listeners. You are back on with David Crowther, the host of the History of England podcast. And he was just about to tell us uh, about the Battle of Cressy. And all of its attendant horrors.
0: Right. Okay. So, so there we go. So, he draws up now. The French army. Um, if you listen to the contemporary chronicles, you know they're all saying well, the French got hundred thousand versus, you know, well, there's Edward and his mum. You know, um, in fact, the difference is probably a lot less. But at Cressy and at Poitiers, actually, or at Agincourt, actually, probably the difference is nowhere near as much as we used to think. But it's probably, at very least, actually, it's two to one. You've got to qualify that a little bit because quite a lot of the French soldiers were um, foot soldiers. Um, it's really the men at arms. But even in the men at arms, you know, these heavily armoured knights uh, or heavily armoured, um, uh, not necessarily uh, knights, but heavily armoured uh, fighting men. Uh, it's still two to one, maybe more. Anyway, so Philip's coming up. He's going, coming across the bridges. He knows that Edward's ahead of him, and he really wants to kill him because Edward has burnt his way across northern France. He's insulted the flower of, uh, of, of France. He's said to the world, this guy can't look after his own. Edward, um, Philip's nobles are egging him on. And actually, as he walks, as he rides along the road towards battle, the, ro- the roads are lined with the French peasantry shouting, kill, kill, kill everything in his ears is about crushing this impertinent, you know, irrelevant king who has dared to tweet the tale of the greatest nation in Christendom. Um, his army is strung out for miles. Uh, the foot soldiers are way, way behind the, you know, the, um, uh, the cavalry. Um, and a bit like our friend uh, Harold at Hastings, the clever thing would have been to wait that evening because he arrives i think late afternoon if i remember correctly um, some of his 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 professional advisors, his marshal is saying well 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 okay you know hang on put some slippers on have a nice cup of tea go into the tent you know in the morning wake up have your croissant and then you know let's then then let's do it but his nobles are saying uh well well we're gonna crush these guys. They are nobody. We are the we are the, the the flower of Christendom and we're going to give them a kicking. So rather than wait for his army, uh rather than wait for everybody to fall out, rather than take control, he just attacks. And the French so he sends the Genoese crossbowmen first forward. Sorry, do you want me to keep rattling on or do you want me to stop? No,
1: no, no. I I think it's important to note that uh, you know, he sent out the mercenaries first. <laughs> keep the noblemen in reserve
0: (laughs) (laughs) phases are at stun um so out they go the genoese and the first problem hits them that you notice i haven't mentioned longbow yet longbow now gets uh, is worth a mention because uh, they find out that the range of the effective range of the longbow, longbow is longer than the range of the crossbow and suddenly they're going forward they're all ready to you know Uh, uh, to unleash their first round of bolts and they're being hit left, right and centre by these crossbows. And of course, they're not heavily armed. Um, And they're in chaos. They're milling around. They don't know what to do. And Philip says, ah, you know, this lot, they're a complete waste of time. We're going to charge. We're going to get the big guys. We're going to do the good old traditional cavalry charge. The Genoese guys are in the way. So what do they do? Run over them? They run over them. Exactly right. They run over them. Okay, now they're just mercenaries. (laughs) Yeah, they are exactly just mercenaries. They're all wearing red shirts, you know, get rid of them. Hold on. This is the moment,
1: I think, to ask you one kind of crucial question, because I don't know that everybody who's going to listen to this is going to be quite as geeky as we are. So um, what's a longbow? Can we just tell people exactly what a longbow is?
0: So a longbow um, is, uh, I mean, I I think that's probably a, a technical conversation I'm probably not capable of having, but it's all about creating tension, of course. And um, many of the bows, the Mongols and all the rest of it, would create that tension by combining wood with horn, for example, and it would create that counter-stress. In the longbow creates that tension simply by its size. So it's six foot long. It's made of heart of you. um, And in order to fire a longbow effectively, requires years and years of training um uh english um english franklins as they are called which is kind of the smart peasantry which is uh, who are the who form the basis of these long long uh, they train and they use the longbow from an, a very early age the smaller the larger and larger bows the older they get and they're constantly practicing um uh, and in fact um you can see that some of these longbowmen, actually, it, it twists their spine. The, the strain of pulling this, uh, the, the draw weight required, actually twists their spine over over their lives. So there, you have different types of arrow that you use with your longbow. So you might use an armour, you know, a, a, an armour-piercing arrow, or you might use um, a, a very sort of traditional arrow-headed type that will stick in and won't be able to get out, but won't have quite the, the puncture force. force. The signs, if anybody had been watching, the signs that the longbow was a um, a, a viciously effective um, weapon have been there. So in 1138, as long ago as 200 years ago, uh, the English beat the Scots at a battle called the Battle of the Standard. It's the longbow that does the damage there. Um, the Scots in that battle are relatively lightly armoured, have little defence against the longbow. So the signs are all there. There's an amazing battle, 1341, the Battle of Morlaix, where a very small number of Englishmen hold off a much, much larger um, France, um, French force. Uh, the Battle of just a few months before Cressy, uh, the Battle of uh, saint Paul de leon where the similar things happen. So the signs were there, actually. If Philip had chosen to see it, all the signs were there that Longbow was a viciously effective weapon. I've over-answered, haven't I, again?
2: no i think that's wonderful and i also want to note that uh, i think you kind of touched on this but for a few generations before this um citizens in citizens i use the term loosely in in england had been uh lightly encouraged to always be practicing with with the bow is that correct yes it is
0: i mean i think there's there's a certain amount of um uh what's the word yeah the exaggeration that goes on so by um so by Henry VIII's time, when really the longbow, of course, was moving out of uh, becoming less effective, well, when the gunpowder was taking over, uh, there is a law requiring people to shoot at butts for a certain amount uh, of time every day. Um, I'm not sure how much coercion there was, to be honest, um, but it was an integral part of um, people's lives. A nation was organized around providing these men for their armies. Um, Yes. So it's part of the weft and warp of the military system. Of course, these days, um, things have changed a lot since, you know, traditional feudal days in these. By the time Edward comes to the throne, armies are gathered in a very different way that they used to be. Um, by the time of Edward the first, actually, in the late 13th century, what happens is Edward contracts a number of captains and those captains, they go into their, their localities. It might be their tenants. Um, and they put together a a force of varying sizes. You know, the largest ones are several hundred. The smallest ones are just a few people. And it's those captains, actually, who bring the army to to Edward. Um, so there's a series of contracted captains, effectively. All
2: right. Excellent. Let's get back to those dead uh, Genoese. So they've
0: been mown down and hacked pieces out of the way. And then the French charge. Now, here's one of the myths. I mean, I, th- I think one of the things you asked me was about myths of... Um, uh of these uh the hundred years war and one of the myths of the longbow is that it was you know an unstoppable engine of war that was lethal there are a few things about that one is it's not necessarily the weapon itself or certainly not entirely it's the way that it was used in an organized way with large companies of men all shooting together at the same time all in a very disciplined way, in a defensive formation that integrated longbow with men at arms. That's point number one. It's not the longbow on itself; that would be, you know, uh, far too simple. The second thing is that the longbow uh, was not, even on a, even on in its own on its own account, is not that brutal, um, uninfallible weapon. So uh, the longbow itself. Was, is often not very effective against very heavily armed uh, men-at-arms. So in a few years' time, we'll have a, a second amazing victory, that, that of Poitiers. And the French have learnt by Poitiers. Uh, they learn from it, the Cressy, and they dismount, and they walk towards the English lines. And there are probably something like 10,000 arrows being uh, shot at them um, in a constant hail, and yet they get to the line. In actual fact, armor was very effective against longbow. But what they couldn't, what the longbow was absolutely effective against, was broken bodies of men, uh, poor, lightly armed and lightly armored men, but horses in particular. Horses were massively vulnerable. And so the French attack on horse because that's their idiom. And the horses die in thousands. And the horses fall. Uh, the battlefield is a mess. Second waves coming can 't get over these dead horses screaming horses, dying men, as the French charge falters and retreats, the lightly armed archers run forward, they stick knives through the eye holes of the fallen men at arms they gather up their arrows, they go back to the line, they wait. The French are astounding. the French keep coming wave after wave of cavalry charge uh, is mown down by, um, by the long longbow. But it's the horse, it's the fact that they're on horseback that is the real, what really makes them vulnerable to the longbow, not that the longbow can inevitably pierce armour. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one of the myths there. So nonetheless, despite this slaughter, the French reach the English lines. Um, and this is the other myth, I think, about Cressy, that it's all about the longbow. Well, it isn't. So you get this wonderful thing where um, the black prince, young black prince, he's 16 at the, uh, at the battle. It's his first battle. And the king gives him command of the left wing. He puts his best man with him, the Earl of Warwick. And he puts his best man with him to look after him. But nonetheless, the black prince, 16 years old, is in command of, of one of the battles. And the fighting is fierce. Um, the uh, man against man. Uh, heavily armoured French have reached the English line, and the English are much uh, uh, far fewer, and they are heavily pressed. And in the middle of the battle, ah, the Earl of Warwick's in an absolute panic. You know, there's too many of them, they're going to be overwhelmed. Uh, he sends to uh, Edward III and he says, Look, I, send me more, send me the reserves. We've got to have help here, otherwise your son's going to be overwhelmed. And Edward looks the guy in the eye and said, This is the time my son earns his spurs. And he doesn't send the men. I mean, you know, for, as a parenting technique, you know, way out of date, way out of date. <laughs> and But of course, it works. The Black Prince holds the line and there the myth, of, well, even the myth, the legend of the uh, the Black Prince is born, um, you know, a real chip off the old block. Eventually, the French can't take any more. They break. Um, they're milling around. And they don't know what to do. The foot soldiers, of course, are still constantly arriving at the field of battle on the French side. The The French have had enough. They don't want to charge again. Um, And so Edward says, right, mount up. This is it. Now's the time. The English mount men at arms. mount. They charge the French. The French French flee. And Christendom is in shock that the finest nation uh, in Christendom, the most powerful, unbeatable um, army, has been destroyed by this bunch of blokes from this irrelevant place off the coast.
1: Blokes from Blaine. And what happened...
0: (laughs) <laughs>
2: what what happened to a lot of those french uh knights so you know you said that they were they were they captured as was the norm or did they all get stabbed in the eye
0: so as, as soon as um the battle was over as a competitive event in actual fact throughout a uh, battle like that um you would take your opposing number uh, your opposite number captive as hostage there's a lovely um actually a Keep moving on to Poitiers, but at uh, Poitiers, of course, the king, French king, is captured. And there's this lovely image of um, the French King John with his son, who will later give the, kick the English out of France, um, surrounded by French, English knights. And nobody wants to kill him. And they, the, his son is saying, Look, there, dad, dad, that one, there's another one coming there, there's another one coming there. And he's, you know, eventually he's overwhelmed. But nobody's going to kill these guys because they're worth a lot of money. So you take them captive. You say right he yields sir, sir or whatever they do and they, they they yield up their sword and they give their they give their um um their pledge to their captor uh, and they're normally then allowed to um uh, to they, to go home to raise the money and very often they don't leave a hostage and that's an inor- that that is the way that money is made out of this um uh as much as you know the uh, the robbing and the stealing and the sacking of towns or whatever um so nobody would kill your opposing number the other thing i think worth mentioning is these are these guys know each other you know they're uh the english and the french lords they're mates they're fighting in jousts together they share the same culture they share the same language largely uh they are it's almost like a game it's not quite because it's a pretty deadly game but it is almost like this is their job. This is what they're put on the planet for is to fight. There are three estates. There is a the men who fight, the men who pray, and the men who work. Who work. This is that what they do. And they were all they were all still speaking French at court, correct? They're still free, speaking French in court. in, in Edward the time you get the first hint of uh, English as a national symbol. So there's a lovely moment when Edward the 3rd announces to the world that the French king is trying to destroy the English language. It's a very famous quote, because here's this this in the argument about when does England become a nation? You know, when does it think of itself as as a nation rather than, you know, belonging to a particular lord? Uh, this is that this is a quite a significant moment because he talks about the English language being uh, uh, ex- extinguished by the French. Um, But at court, they're all speaking French. And as I say, they share the same culture. So they're kind of mates. They don't really want to kill each other because, you know, they get on. You know, when when the fighting's ended, they're going to have a party. Uh, I exaggerate for a fact. But um, certainly the thing that changes all that is the the civil war in England, the the wars of the roses. That's the first time really where you get nobles being routinely killed and executed. And it's very unusual. We've got another hundred years before that happens. When the longbow finally went out of
1: style, what was it that had changed?
0: Um, Warfare changes um, significantly. So the first thing is that it's going back to that point that the longbow is a life's work. Um, Whereas a, a gunpowder weapon, especially as it begins to get more sophisticated by the 16th century and later 15th century, any old Charlie can... Can use so in just in in a numbers game and in a mat you know a weight of fire it becomes impossible so in, individually actually a longbow uh, i think somebody says this at one stage i can't remember who though is more effective but you can't get the numbers um so that changes. You now, and it, that makes war much more, in a funny sort of way, much more democratic. I think mean, it may be the wrong word, but you know, far more people get involved. Armies grow in number um, because you can just get many more people on the battlefield with uh, an effective weapon. Um, tactics change as well, of course. So you get the pike, um, the advent of the Spanish tercios. Um, you get artillery um, on on the field of battle. You get field artillery. So. Um, the whole um, uh, the whole set of tactics changes and uh, the longbows just can't get the numbers. Um, it isn't flexible enough. doesn't have the range that a uh, superiority it used to have. And thus ended a period of history. And thus ended a period of history, yes. <laughs> indeed. I think it's... Um, I mean, I think one of the things, uh, one of the other interesting things is how um, uh, uh, how things change after... after Uh, Cressy, you know, what the French learn about it and what what happens to the Hundred Years War Um, because one of the remarkable things is how long it goes before the French actually realise that they're doing it all wrong Uh, so you get a very famous Frenchman called Bertrand du Guesclin, who says right we're not going to fight pitched battles anymore we're bigger, we've got more economic resources and they refuse to fight basically, they live in in fortified towns and it's, it's trench warfare and, you know, over then, Edward, there's this tragic end to Edward III's life where, you know, this great glorious king, this shining example of chivalry, um, loses all the land that he's lost. He himself uh, is mentally, becomes mentally very frail. His wife, uh, the, the beautiful Philippa of Hainault, this sort of, again, this model of queenship, she dies. He is Duped by a um, a mistress called Alice Perez, who, as he dies, actually steals the rings from his fingers and flees. Before that, though, he sees his son, the Black Prince, get very ill, change character um, and die a year before he does. So there's this amazing story of this, you know, of of glory to ashes, um, uh, of glorious victory of his youth in this golden court. Turning to to despair and uh, and defeat. It's an amazing story.
1: That is a perfect ending for us because we try to end this show every week on a downer, and it's amazing
0: how often we succeed.
2: Every every episode is a is uh, Empire Strikes
0: Back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very glad that you know all but unknown to me. I've given you the uh, the right uh, end of depression and despair that you're looking for,
1: David Crowther the History of England podcast. Thank you so much for joining
0: us. Lovely. Thank you for inviting me. It was great.
2: Thank you, War College listeners. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast as much as we did. It was an absolute blast to record. Just after we finished, though, David sent us an email. It says, Our interview stands on the brink of unleashing a storm of fury. I did not mention the key advantage of the longbow over crossbow. Its superior rate of fire maybe up to 6 to 1 in the hands of an expert. David stressed that he was seeking penance for leaving out this critical fact and has promised that he will be walking naked through his local town while wearing ashes in penance for his crime. Seriously, that's what his email to us says. His podcast is The History of England. It is incredible. You can find it on Acast and iTunes and wherever else fine podcasts are distributed. We are War College. It's a joint venture of me, Matthew Galt, and Jason, Jason Fields. We take turns producing the show, and we co-host almost every episode. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast, or on Twitter at war underscore college and of course, just like the history of England, we are on Acast and iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else fine podcasts are distributed. We do appreciate your feedback and we read everything y'all send us. I just wanted to share a comment I got on Twitter from Dante Sandoval. He said, big fan of War College. Thanks for covering the topics and stories I don't hear elsewhere. The value you and Jason Fields bring is that the topics are widely ignored, but important. He then suggested we look into the South China Sea situation and see what China's ambitions are and plans are there. Now, it's a topic we've covered before, but I think it's I think it's time to look at it again. There's been quite a few updates and movements there. Well, Dante, we're on it. And thank you for listening. This is a cast recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favorite shows, and this is one we think you're gonna love
0: folks, this is Rick Wilson from The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. And I'm Molly Chiangpast, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. Every Tuesday and Friday, we have fun, sharp conversations with people like Mary Trump, who reveal why her uncle is the worst president we've ever had. Or Ben Stiller on how the world of comedy is changing thanks to our political landscape. Tune in to The New Abnormal to hear us have fun conversations 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 about
2: a world gone mad. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the US and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.